Hi, everybody, and welcome to Season 3 of the Talk Music Podcast. My name's Tom Chamruth. Coming up on this podcast is a wonderful chat I had with Nashville-based musician, producer, songwriter, and overall music whiz, Colin Linden. Colin's been a member of Black and the Rodeo Kings for 25 years now, but he also finds time to record solo albums, and here's a taste of his new one before my intro for him and our chat. plays acoustic and electric guitars, including slide guitar, and frankly really excels at anything with strings on it. He currently performs with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, and he's recently released a new solo album called Blow, and it's on the Lucinda Williams record label. I do believe he's had 13 other solo albums out, and I'll check that with him when he comes on. I've heard the new album, and I love it. He is Canadian, and Colin started his career in Toronto before eventually moving to Nashville. There he became really successful as the main music producer of the hit TV show Nashville, which ran for many, many years. He's played on, and get ready for this, it's a wow number, 500 albums, and he's produced, and I'm going to use the word wow again, 140 albums, also nabbing a staggering 25 Juno Award nominations, winning nine. Uh, Colin was also nominated for a Grammy Award in 2020. Colin's career is really the stuff of legend, and all I can say is it's a real honor to have you on the show. Really great to be here, Tom. So if you don't mind, um, there's no format here or anything pre-planned, so we're probably just going to jump all over the place. And um, let's start with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings and the most recent tour you just completed before Christmas. Um, It took in most of Canada, and you hit the UK as well, I believe. So my first question before we go deep into your music career is simply, how was it touring again when the entire world had been shut down for two plus years? And uh, were there any real difficulties in pulling it off? You know, were you able to do meet and greets and all that? And did you have issues in certain cities and not in others? Well, mostly it was fantastic. I mean, it was just great that people hung in with us and wanted to come out and hear us play again. Yeah, for sure. And we really, really enjoyed each other's company. I could see it on stage. I saw the Toronto show. I could see that camaraderie there, that friendship. You know, it really is a beautiful thing. And, you know, it's something that you know how you feel about your friends and all that. But it's so nice when the the musical component of it, the, the musical chemistry continues. And it really felt like that. And we did, you know, we had a bunch of different guests on different shows. So, Oh, I, I love Tara and Digging Roots for fantastic choices. And of yeah. course, their indigenous message was was really important to, to put out there. Yeah. So did you have any, any COVID issues anymore? Or was that sort of... Having some now. <laughs> uh, my wife has got it. Oh, really? One of our best friends uh, who plays bass with me and with Blackie is staying with us. And both of them have it. Oh, shit. Fortunately, seems to be pretty mild and mostly finished it. And I got it on the road uh, in August when Blackie was playing a festival in Grand Prairie. Wow. And how did you deal with that? Did you have to cancel shows? Well, I didn't know that I was sick and I flew to Kelowna where my next you know, a bunch of shows were. Right. And we uh, had to cancel one show, but I ended up having to stay in Kelowna, isolated uh, in, a, in a hotel there for a few days. Okay. And then we went right, then we went to England. And so fortunately, by the time we went to England, I was, you know, already kind of clear of it. But it was, it was a challenge. <laughs> well, for sure. Were you able to meet fans after the show, you know, do meet and greets, or did you have to cancel those now? Most of the time we did, and we just were really vigilant about masking. Sure. And fortunately, nobody got COVID on the road. None of our none of our gang did. That's amazing. And hopefully none of our fans did. I got a pretty severe case of the RSV virus before the tour started. Ah, uh, okay. I was in the studio working on a record, and then... Uh, and so the first part of the tour, I was in pretty rough shape vocally, but, uh, and that was actually worse than COVID. But, uh, yeah, really, that, that's what I hear these days is a flu can be worse, actually. But uh, uh, a part B to this question before we dig into your, your music career is, um, uh, do you have a comment on just everybody seems to be talking out there about how expensive it's gotten to go on the road, you know, all the extra costs associated with touring. 
does that affect you guys in any way or the opening acts or were you able to still manage to put everybody on a bus and everything still is okay? Because the gas prices seem to have stabilized a bit. But I know a lot of people have canceled tours and stuff, particularly those artists that are trying to get going, you know, playing clubs and stuff. It's got to be really tough. It, it, it is a challenge and all that. Uh, and uh, we managed to do it and it was really good. It was not, you know, we definitely felt uh, we felt the difference for sure. But I always think of what my dear friend and hero, uh, Levon Helm, used to say, I ain't in it for my health. <laughs> and, uh, and I think about that because this is what we do. It's an honor to be able to go out there and play your music in front of people and actually have people care about songs that you wrote and records you made. Yeah, that's the perfect answer, Colin. Perfect. So anyhow. Yeah, it's what you, it's what you guys do. People will be listening to this and going, oh, geez, you know, how do I get out there and tour? And, you know, uh, some of the clubs have closed and, you know, uh, some people still are, are reluctant to go into a small club, blah, blah, blah. You know, the hotels are expensive. So we were lucky that, uh, you know, we've had uh, enough of a following that we could do it. Yeah. Um, well, you you deserve to be where you are, and we'll get into that in a minute. So so let's go into the music itself. I saw the concert in Toronto, and of course it was wonderful in all respects. And um, I guess my, my question there is, how have you guys managed to sustain your career trajectory where it just keeps going and going, and it's actually getting bigger as you celebrate 25 years together? What, what, what are your secrets, or is it just you guys have become such close friends, or...? That's a big part of it. And the other thing, too, is that maybe because it's not the only thing that any of us do. True. We can still kind of keep Blackie really special. It still feels like it's our side project, even though it's eclipsed so many other things that we've been involved with. You can kind of maybe put some of your, not concerns, maybe some of your neuroses and worries away a little bit when you're playing with Blackie, because you know that. Ultimately, if it ends up that Stephen and Tom and me and Johnny and Gary are sitting around a little, uh, you know, sitting around in my studio here, right, just playing for fun, or Stephen and Tom and I are sitting around a table playing Willie P. Bennett songs, that's the heart and soul of the group right there. So anything beyond that is a bonus. So um, how do you balance all your solo careers outside of Blackie? Do you just guys, do you have, is it management that gets involved and just, you know, pencils out your whole year in advance? Or do you just kind of wing it a bit? Like, hey, what do you, what's everybody doing? I'm doing a new record, blah, blah, blah. And you just sort of work it out on the fly? It's more like that. It is a little bit more doing it on the fly because part of what makes it relaxed and fun for us, and I think for the audiences too, is that we make sure that it's not like, it's not like we're in the army when we're doing it, you know? So, um, you know, so you can look a little bit far, further ahead and you think, okay, well, you know, like I knew that when we released our last record before the pandemic, it was called King of This Town. We released yep. our first one on Warner Brothers. It was released January 24th, 2020. So just before everything happened. So I knew, we all knew that that was never going to be a new record again. Yeah. So uh, at the time, Steve Kane was still over at Warner Brothers. And I, you know, I said, if we got a chance to make another record and make a record that would, by definition, be a really different process uh, than what uh, than what we had done, would you hang in with us and, and let us make another album so that when people can go out and play, we'd have something new and we would have something that would be fundamentally different than what we had done just because of the method we'd have to record it. And Steve said, if you want to do it, let's do it. And uh, that's how we ended up being able to do Oh Glory. And it's, especially Tom Wilson and I, we got into, uh, and Tommy and I have known each other since uh, I was 16 and he was 17. So we go back a real long way. And we got into this groove that enabled us to make the, we, we wrote enough songs for two albums for sure. Right. So you have time management down, down really well uh, because all you guys are super busy and super successful also with your solo career. So now I have a, just a bit of a technical question before I get into your beginnings of your career. Mm -hmm. So also you do a lot of uh, production, et cetera, et cetera. So 
do you now do most of it at home where the files, you know, when people ask you to play on a record, you do it at home or is there still a lot of in-person stuff going on? Uh, so why don't you jump into that a bit? Well, our studio here, uh, and I say our, it's my wife and I, uh, mm-hmm. she designed it and she's the studio manager and she's the brains of the operation. Oh, wonderful. Her name's Janice Powers. And, uh, we dreamt about having a real facility after having a place in the house for years. Uh, so we built this building behind behind where we live in Nashville, and it's a thousand square feet. Uh, I just finished doing a seven piece band here. Oh wow! So it was so it's so it's a bit it's a you know it's good, you've got a nice live area there to record. Yeah, it's it's and it, for the for the way that I like making records, which is not I don't worry that much about isolation or anything like that. No. No, that that's not your thing, you know. You like to record. Yeah, for the kind of music I made, you don't kind of need it most of the time. No. And so I end up to answer your question. I do more stuff here than I do anywhere else, but I still get called to go. Well, people will send me files, and I'll play on their records from here. Right. But I'm gonna. I'm getting ready to do. Uh, you know, I, I still you know do sessions here in Nashville. It's quite easy to do that because we live right in town. So. We're, uh, you know, a seven minute drive from Blackbird and from used to be House of Blues Studios. So it's easy to get the places. So I still do that. Well, congrats to you for also uh, continuing to almost um, insist with certain acts that you want to still record live off the floor, because that's really where the magic happens. You know, as a as a producer myself, I, you know, my favorite moments in time have always been that magic moment when everybody knows you've nailed the take. And it's just so obvious sometimes you just kind of go, wow, why the fuck did we pull that off? It's still a great <laughs> feeling every time. Right. Yeah. I still remember those moments too. You know, some kinds of music, uh, I'm starting a record with an artist from Chicago uh-huh. who's a violinist and singer who's great, uh, named Ann Harris. And we're going to do the record, just the two of us mostly, and we'll probably add components that, that come to it. Sure. So it's a, you know, we can do and that. that works too. Yeah. But I do, you know, there's no substitute for live off the floor. And that is, you know, with, with a really good band, really good players and uh, the kind of focus and commitment. Yeah. I mean, we can't make every kind of record here, but we can make surprisingly more than I would have even thought of the kind I like to make and that I get called to make. Let's go back to your beginnings, because um, you're obviously, you've been in love with music probably since you were uh, uh, a little guy, I would say, and you and you started in Toronto. So um, why don't you just sort of get into a bit how, you know, was your family musical? How did you get going in Toronto? And then segue into how you ended up going, okay, maybe I need to get out of town and uh, maybe I need to spread my wings and go somewhere else. And, and you ended up in Nashville. Well, uh, I actually... I actually grew up in White Plains, New York as a little, a really little kid. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Till I was almost 11. And in those last few years that uh, we lived in White Plains, my brothers and my mom and I, we went to a lot of concerts. I, I used to go to the Capitol Theater in Portchester. Really? Uh, which just, you know, like 15 minutes from where I lived. And when I was nine and 10 years old, um, and I'd often, you know, my mom would drop me off yep. and I'd go to the early show and she'd come and pick me up. Yep. I mean, I knew I got to know I was pretty conspicuous being that age. So I got to know the um, especially the guy who ran the box office at the Capitol. Oh, that's important. <laughs> okay. Who's still a friend of mine, by the way, to the day. That's cool. And uh, so it was it was a wonderful way to get uh just, I felt like I was in the place that I belonged in a beautiful 1800 seat theater. I think it was 1800 uh, seat theater. Yeah. You know, hearing everybody from John Lee Hooker and Santana to the Kings. And what age were you that? I was, well, it was the year I turned 10. So I went to a few concerts before April, which is my birthday, and then a bunch after. Wow. Then we moved to Toronto in November of that year. So, Colin, let me get this straight. You were able to grasp at ten those greats, you know, yeah. like musically. You, you would be, yeah. you're, you, you would be able to to appreciate how great that was at that young age. Wow, that that blows me away. The first show I went to, I was eight, and it was Jimi Hendrix at Flushing <laughs> Meadows Park in, uh, in wow. Queens. And part of it too, though, Tom, is just that I have. I'm the youngest of three brothers. Uh, my brothers are four and were uh, four years older, and and are six years older. Uh, than me. So, uh, um, you know, they were great about kind of letting me tag along. So I had a, a, a bit more of a sophisticated 
uh, uh, antenna because of them. And they let me come with them. When we came to Toronto, Toronto was just the greatest place. It was so accessible. And literally the first weekend that we lived here, I'm not in Toronto. I'm in Nashville. No, I know. The first weekend that we lived there, my brothers and I went to the riverboat. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. On Yorkville. Yeah, infamous. Heard a gal named Dee Higgins who was accompanied by Dennis Pendrith on bass and Patrick Godfrey on drums. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was, um, I think that that was the 22nd of November, uh, 1970. And two nights before the night that we actually moved into our house, I went to see Tom Rush and Livingston Taylor at Massey Hall. Wow. And uh, um, so I, I immediately felt at home in Toronto. It was so everything was so accessible there. You know, even I started performing when I was 12. Really, the, the, uh, the, the main thing happened for me that, that changed everything was uh, a year after we moved to Toronto, I fell under the spell of blues music and I got to meet Howlin' Wolf uh, November 27, 1971 at the Colonial Tavern at the Matinee. Wow. And that they let you. How did you get in? <laughs> uh, the upstairs was licensed as a as a restaurant, so miners could get in. Uh, oh wow, that's cool! And I did a tremendous amount of research to make sure they could let me in. And I got there three hours ahead of the show to make sure that nothing would get in the way of me seeing the wolf. And the wolf was there having lunch, and uh, he wasn't going to go back to his hotel. So I made a beeline through the balcony, and there were these stairs. I don't know if you remember the Colonial. Yeah, I, I do. I used to go there too. There were stairs from the balcony that led to the stage. And the wolf was in the corner right by the stage at the bottom of the stairs. I made a beeline through the balcony, down the stairs. I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Wolf, you're my hero. I'm only 11 and they won't let me downstairs, but will you come upstairs and talk with me? And he said, sure. Oh, that's wild. So we spent the afternoon talking and I'm actually looking that way because there's a photograph here in my studio uh, that's right behind my console that, that my mom took that day and i bet you it's clear clear as day that meeting and that that, that moment in time it, is it just is. etched forever it in your absolutely brain absolutely is and and you know he came to toronto quite a bit mm -hmm. uh he passed on january 10th uh, 1976 and uh every time he came to toronto he always took time for me you know so i got to know him you know i feel like i got to know him well yeah well that sounds like almost um what you call a um let's call it a, a mentor of some kind, not somebody who was there regularly, but uh, you know, you know, some of those moments in time where there's certain special people come into your life and you, you, you know, I had a few in my career, Jack Richardson comes to mind yeah. who got me going in my career. Pretty good one right there. Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't there for that long, but I needed somebody in the beginning to even be inspired by. And it looks like that happened to you. I was very lucky that way. And the wolf turned me on to a whole generation. Yeah. And what he said to me the first time I met him is he said, if you want to play this kind of music, listen to the people I listen to. And it, it sent me on what is still an ongoing journey of learning 1920s and 30s blues. And back then, I'm 62 now, so this was in the early Quite a few of the people who were, you know, there were a number of blues artists from the 20s and 30s who were still alive. And I got to know quite a few of them. Uh, Sam Chapman from the Mississippi Sheiks. I made his last record with him mm -hmm. when he was 80 and I was 19. Oh, that must have been a thrill. So there was a, a whole, it, it opened a whole world of these people who were kind of mythological characters who were all very accepting of me as this fat little kid from Canada. You know? Yeah, and I like the way you said characters because they were, and in those days too, they weren't revered anywhere near as much as as they should have been probably because you could walk into a colonial. I I did myself to see. You know, I remember seeing Jimmy Smith, this organist. Yeah, too. of course. Yeah, there may have been ten people there, and I'm kind of like Elvin Jones, you know, the drummer, and because yeah. I, I was I was doing the same thing as you and going, holy fuck. Where is everybody? <laughs> yeah. But I think our brains just sort of, you know, uh, latched on to their greatness at, at that early age, because uh, obviously, you know, that's what happened to you. I do think also that in, in addition to their greatness as as uh, artists, I think the, f the fact, I mean, with Wolf, he was a working musician. Yeah. And he was absolutely determined that this is what he does. In the same way Black and the Rodeo Kings, you know. Yep. If people will come and see us, you know, and we'll go and play. And if not, we'll go and play. This is what we do. <laughs> so and those guys were like that. And they're the, the pillars of, you know, of, of music. 
throughout the world. Jimmy Smith, of course. But I, I met Muddy Waters the same way. And Muddy got me up on stage when I was 15, 16. Um, you know, he hushed the audience and said, this, this young fellow here who plays the kind of blues I played, I heard when I was a kid. So I want you to all be quiet. Make them feel welcome. Oh, that's lovely. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, no, those are those are special moments in time. So, um, so uh, how else did you sort of get going in Toronto? Where, how did you end up continuing your career there? And then, you know, when did you realize that, okay, um, there's other opportunities out there? Yeah. Early on, there were a few people who were also really great to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the folk scene, generally speaking, was very embracing of what I, of, of, you know, me as a kid learning and, uh, you know, Ken and Chris Whiteley from the original sloth band were fantastic. Yep. Willie P. Bennett, who I played with for years uh, later, was really great to me. Uh, a guy who's not that well-known named John Thibodeau taught me how to finger pick, mm-hmm. taught me so much. And my brothers were, were, you know, they were incredible. So early on, it was a wonderful place to be. Then when I was 14, I met David Wilcox. Oh, okay. I kind of felt like he was one of the only people in the world who I kind of, we, he, he meant a tremendous amount to me and he took a deal of time with me. Glad to see he's still going. Yeah. And oh yeah. And I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite guitar players ever from the second that I heard him until now, including that. Yeah. And he was great to me. So I ended up uh, playing in his band for a short period of time, quitting school when I was 16 and just moving into a rooming house on Spadina and uh, and uh, just practicing my brains out. And I always liked making records. And I began to um, get called by friends of mine, like Morgan Davis, mm-hmm. great blues singer, uh, still living, and I lives in the East Coast now. He called me to come in. I was, I was in his band sort of off and on at different times when I was in my late teens and early 20s. But even, you know, when I was in my late teens, you know, he said, I always, the engineers always make me turn off my reverb on my amp. They make me turn down. And I just, I just get, I just think I have terrible tone in the studio. You seem to like being in the studio because I was always, I mean, I had a reel to reel sound on sound tape recorder. Probably you did too. I had the four track too. Yeah. I know all about it. And it just, it was just, you know, I always wanted to make records always from the time I was long before I could play from the time I was four probably or younger. Um, so Morgan said, you have a good time in there. Would you come in with me so that I can have a good time too? <laughs> okay. So we went in and had a good time and that's really, uh, it is a good time. Everybody's hearing this. It is, it is great fun recording music. Come it's on. Amazing. It's, it's the greatest thing to this day. I, I, uh, it's a gift to do it. Well, <laughs> one of my great, great mentors and friends for the last 30 years still, uh, and who's here in Nashville now, T-Bone Burnett. Oh, for sure. Uh, he and I get together a lot and just play socially, just the two of us for fun. Amazing. And, you know, he says the same thing. He says, recording music is just the most wonderful thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, you know, in a very basic way, that's the motivation for all of it, right? And sometimes and sometimes we even get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. If you get paid for it, if, even, even if you just it's a bonus. get paid enough that you can continue to do it. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that's really where the uh, you know where the rubber beats the road. So you ended up doing a lot of studio work uh, via some friendships that you built up. Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you became really well known in that in that world because I was I was following your career as well. And then you you you, I'm trying to think though. You ended up um, you weren't in Junk House, but you got you got to to you know Tom Wilson at some point. Yeah. When you're what, 17 or 18 or something? I was, uh, I was 16 and he was 17. Okay. When we met, we were the two youngest guys hanging around the folk scene. And we met at the very first festival of friends in Hamilton, 1976. I know it. Yep. And paid, paid some attention to one another. And then as the years went on, you know, usually at the festival when they would book him and they would book me because we were the kids Either I would be on at the 12 o'clock slot and he would be on at the 1230 slot noon and, <laughs> and not 12 at night. And I'd, either I'd be on first or he'd be on first because we were the youngest. Some years he was on first and I was on second. And some years nice. I was on first and he was on second. So we got to know each other back then. And I had great respect. It was almost like he had this sense 
maybe because he was younger than everybody else and you know Hamilton's kind of a you know it's uh, uh, of course it's a gritty town it's a gritty town and you know he probably had people you know tell him where to go a lot of times and, and I'm sure <laughs> and uh, I just got a sense that he had a great strength and character and we always enjoyed each other's company and he would do things for a few years he would book a, a club, he booked a club called the Gown and Gavel mm-hmm. yeah on Hess Street or something yeah he would book yeah and Willie P Bennett and I would go and play there I was Willie's side man for years, I loved his music so much. And my brother, Jay, learned all of his songs. So, you know, I would say to Willie, uh, you know, can I come and sit in with you? And, uh, and I, you know, I know, I knew all of his songs or, yeah. and then eventually he hired me when I was about 22. So we went and played the gown and gavel. And I just got to know Tom from the festivals and uh, because I didn't know how to drive until I was in my mid thirties. Oh, really? I uh, when that. I would play in Hamilton, I would often be stuck in Hamilton. And I would sometimes <laughs> stay at his apartment <laughs> okay. until the first bus could take me back to Toronto. So oh, wow, okay. we had a lot in common. We liked the same records. Uh, we liked roots music at a period of time where that was not particularly popular. Hamilton had a fantastic music scene. It still does, but it still does. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Um, so the years go on, Tom and I both end up uh, in the Sony music world. That's right. Uh, I got signed as an artist and Tom. And you know, my, you know, one of my best friends is uh, Gary Furness, who's still there. Yeah. And, uh, and who is uh, one of the sweetest and kindest people he is in in the music business or any other business and is also one of my absolute favorite engineers and producers too he's got absolutely he's, he's such a humble guy i think he's got uh, he makes incredible contributions to all the records he he works on very very humble and uh, he's been my best friend probably since we went to fanshawe together and uh you know i just get emotional when i even think about what a close friend he is because he's always there he's always loves to talk about music we can't shut each other up it's one of those magical relationships that that you probably have with with your uh fellow musicians in, in blackie you know you just you, there's just something going on that's just going to be a lifelong thing you're just going to be brothers forever that's yeah. that's that's it it's one of those it's that that sense of fellowship is i think the thing that uh uh, that that and it is absolutely connected to a love and commitment to music. It is commitment to music. A hundred percent. Well, that's why Gary's still going because he loves music so much. He'll he'll go to the end, you know, until he he can't breathe anymore doing music. He just will. He's one of those guys, and I respect that absolutely. And I think that that's the fellowship that we have as a community with people who who are drawn to it and who are as my uh, great friend. Uh, uh, the late and great Richard Bell mm-hmm. yep. said, I'm a lifer, you know, and that's what it, it, most of us are. Those of us who have been around for a few years. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's a privilege, as you said earlier, it's a privilege to do, to do this and be, and be talking music even uh, every day. So, so that's great. So obviously one thing I, I, you know, that we should put out there is you paid your dues and I don't think there's any substitute for that. You really did um, build your career up by, you know, let's not go to 10,000 hours. You put in a hundred thousand hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is. From there the sounds are, of it, you got to play, you got to practice your fucking instrument, everybody. I mean, it's so obvious, but you know, you're a perfect example of that. It didn't come to you naturally. It, it, to a certain extent it did, but you have to work on your craft and you've done that and you're still working on it for, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Every day. I remember something that, uh, um, that David Wilcox said to me when I was, really young. He said, there's some players who are incredibly talented and don't work that hard and they get to be really good players. And there's some players who don't have as much natural talent, but work their asses off and they get to be good players. Correct. But he said, the great players have a ton of natural talent and they work their asses off. (laughs) That's right. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. So, so let's segue to um, to Nashville. How did you end up leaving Toronto, and how did you get going down there? Because obviously, you became very successful down there. So, go into that. I uh, I came to Nashville for the first time. Uh, I got signed to Warner Chapel as a writer. Okay. In nineteen eighty seven, actually, and by a guy named Jerry Renowich, who was a real angel to me. And Jerry said, "You know what? I bet you would have a great time co-writing in Nashville," which was the furthest thing from my mind. But I thought, this is great. Somebody 
thinks I could maybe do that. And I always loved country music, uh, albeit in, you know, earlier strains of country music. But in the 80s, I mean, good Lord, I came down here. He sent me down here for a week. And the folks at Warner Chapel here in Nashville set me up to write with some really good people. And I had never really co-written before. I had written a few things with other people who were friends and so on. Um, and uh, um, when I was down here, I kind of realized that there was so much music that I loved. You know, there were so many great people. I mean, Lyle Lovett was making records. Steve Earle was making records. Mm -hmm. uh, John Hyatt and John Prine, uh, Roseanne Cash and Rodney Crowell. There was really, there was really great music that you would think of now, maybe as singer-songwriter music. That was absolutely mainstream country music at the time. And it was a very, uh, a very stimulating experience. And the, I could tell that the bar was incredibly high for all of the different skills for writing, for playing, for singing, for recording, for production. Mm -hmm. It was, it had, there was sort of a certain way of doing things here, but for that way, it was, the bar was unbelievably high and it was very inspiring to me. And I ended up getting a hit the first time I came down uh, with uh, Michelle Wright. Oh, wow. We got, we had another one song called Guitar Talk. I remember, I remember her. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Took a couple of years for it to happen, but so that so that got you attention down there. It got and that's me what up. you needed to get to get sort of the door open. Mostly, what it did was it gave it gave Jerry a reason to keep sending me down here. That was the main <laughs> okay. thing. He said, "You know, this this seems like it's going to work for you." So he kept sending me down here, and then by maybe around the mid nineties, after coming down here a bunch of times, I began meeting people who were sort of more like minded. You know, because I always felt like when I was coming down here to write, I would be stepping out of my world and going into their world, which was actually fun and uh, learned a ton. But I didn't end up sort of being able to think of even uh, recording songs on my own. That would be stuff that I would co-write. And then by around the mid 90s, uh, the lines began to get blurry and I began to find people here who were really, you know, kind of like minded. And I would hear about people here who I really liked, uh, who were making great music here. And subsequently, I got to know a lot of them. And uh, after just having a few really great trips down here, um, my wife uh, said, why don't we go and try it for three months? Just see how we like it. And in 1997, um, we had learned how to drive because neither one of us knew how to drive before we were in our mid-30s. And... Uh, um, I had a really interesting year. I, I did, uh, I produced and played uh, with Colin James on a record called National Steel. And we toured a lot with that. Yep. Uh, Blackie was, it was the first Blackie record. And we, we had gone on the road with that. And I had ended up producing an album, a, a solo album for Stephen Fearing. And I was already on Sony at that point myself. And so I made a record in New Orleans called Raised by Wolves. So a number of things happened that year and at the end of the year uh janice and i said okay at, after you finish touring with national steel which was in november we'll go to nashville th for three months so it's mid-november till the end of february okay uh we are toward the end of no november 20th uh till till the end of february so um so we uh we did that and we never left. <laughs> no, I can that that's great. That's a great storyline there that you 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 hung in there and you had so much on your plate and all of it sort I look at it kind of like you had a lot of irons in the fire and they started all heating up at once. Well, some of them did. Yeah, it sounds like it and you had you had uh, enough success that you were noticed and you kept going and you kept plugging away. And again, that's also perse perseverance and just staying at it, you know, and going, "Wait a sec, you know, if I keep doing this, I mean, who do, who knows who, who, who might call me on the phone. I mean, it could be Bob Dylan, <laughs> or, it <Yeah>. could be, yeah. <laughs> or it could be, you know, it could be any number of, of, of big acts out there. A lot of them hang out there. So, so it's also uh, being in the right place at the right time to a certain extent. Well, it felt like it was always the right place after a while. Uh -huh. You know, like you come down here, uh, we, we began to find, uh, you know, when we moved here, that that whole world of sort of like-minded people just expanded. And I mean, it got to the point where just it was hard to leave home. Well, let me also compliment you on something else beside the music. Also, you are a really nice, warm person. Every time I've met you, just oh, you just you. have that. And I think I think uh, where I know for a fact myself that you people that are also 
really popular or doing very well, they want to also uh, be with people that are nice. You know, of course, you're, you're really talented musically, but you have that personality where people want to hang out with you. And I think that that really says a lot as well is you're very humble. Uh, you know, I think the personality trait is important for people to know that you can't be an asshole. You, get, you have to be nice to people. You don't know who you're going to see on your way up and, and coming down again, which is obviously a cliche line, but I'm throwing it in there. It's, it's kind of true. There is truth to that. But I mean, also, it's not so hard when you feel like you're hanging out with people who you have a lot in common with, who are inspiring to you and you like hanging out with them. So it's it's quite it's sort of. Yeah, it's it's absolutely connected to the music you make. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's something that that I felt about the wolf even when I was a kid was that who he was as an individual was absolutely connected to the music that he made. And, and I've, I guess it's not, it's not to say that every song that you write is autobiographical or anything like that, but who you are is so reflected in what you do. Agreed. So how did you then, um, I, I forget which year Nashville started. I'm going to fast forward a bit there. How, you know, you obviously, let's say, were very well established down there. Is that at a point then where people um, started noticing and, and somebody recommended you for the show? Or how did that all come together? Well, the show happened, uh, to be to be specific, too. Sure. Um, I worked on the show from the first episode to the last episode in a number of different capacities. You did. You wore many hats, I know, for sure. But uh, I always worked for an executive music producer. So, and the, the, the creating executive music producer was my longtime friend, T-Bone Burnett. Of, of course, yeah. And T-Bone's wife, Kelly Coury, who uh, is also known for writing Thelma and Louise mm -hmm. and directing a bunch of movies. She created the show. Okay. And T-Bone was very involved uh, and was the executive music producer for the first year. And the two of them, uh, really created the musical persona, mm -hmm. the different characters that they that, that she invented, and uh, T Bone relied uh, not relied but uh, en enlisted the services of Buddy Miller, who's an absolutely wonderful musician, producer, and songwriter, and singer, guitar player, um, and who is a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, yes, he and, is. Uh, so T-Bone and Buddy worked really closely together. And very early on into the production of it, they asked me to come on board. Okay. First of all, to play on some stuff. And then they asked me to work with the cast members to teach them how to play the parts that we would play in the studio for the shoot. And that led to T-Bone recommending uh, to Lionsgate at ABC that they hire me to be the eyes and ears on the ground, like to supervise all the music shoots. Uh, and I did that, you know, when I would go on the road, I would get a sub to come in for me, but I would do, I did that really until the end of the show. And then after the first year, T-Bone left the show and Buddy uh, inherited the, the role of executive music producer. And Buddy's one of the great guitar players. Mm -hmm. And he said one really fantastic thing to me. He said, you know, I just don't like playing on sessions I'm producing. Would you play all the guitar? <laughs> or play out all the sessions. Uh, okay. Well, it nice. was the greatest thing anyone ever said. <laughs> so that's really good. So it was it was a fantastic thing because I got to, you know, we had such wonderful musicians on the show. And oh, the world's best. Yeah. Yeah. And I, sure. I just it was like it was such a fantastic feeling to be playing on the floor with incredible musicians and and uh, in a in a just a great environment and and basically we did sessions every week you know and uh, you know there was usually three or four music. yeah so that was kind of uh, a full-time gig wasn't it that it you was. weren't doing yeah you weren't touring or doing other solo albums or not not that much during that period uh, well the, we would always in the at least in the first four years we shot from july to april and so I'd go on the road in the summers. And uh, okay, got uh, it. in 2013, really the only road work I did uh, was with Bob Dylan. And, uh, and then uh, uh, in the years subsequent, uh, they were quite, you know, the show was very understanding that all, the, all of the people who I answered to, you know, were, especially in those first four years, they were very understanding about, you know, if I had to sub out. I mean, usually I didn't have to sub out of playing on things, but I would from time to time. You know, if I was away, I would uh, uh, either give lessons over, you know, with FaceTime or I would uh, 
send a sub in to supervise the shoot and then mm-hmm. watch the, the, the dailies and, you know, make all my notes of what was going on. Uh, so I figured ways of doing it, but I didn't go on the road that much in that period. No, time, it sure. sounds like it was a fantastic working environment for you. And also uh, just your networking of, of being able to meet, you know, some of the, the, the best musicians in the world, best singers, songwriters. I mean, that's incredible. What a what a feeling you must have had to go to work every day going, wait a sec, am I getting paid to do this? <laughs> yeah. it, it was a really great experience, you know. And uh, how did how did that phone call from Bob Dylan while well, while well, you just mentioned his name there. I have to go there for a second. How did that happen? Did how was he aware of you, et cetera? My guardian angel did it, and that's Buddy Miller. Oh, really? Uh, Duke Robillard left Bob's band without giving a lot of notice, and uh, he left in Memphis. And the following night, came to Nashville, and uh, Bob found out that Buddy was at the show, and Bob was very aware of Buddy's work. Okay, and very fond of Buddy's work, and you know, said, "Hey, you want to come out and?" Um, and, uh, and play for a while. And uh, buddy <laughs> said, I, I just got this gig as executive music producer, of the TV show, and I can't do it, but I have a friend. Oh, and that's how it happened. Wow. And so I did the rest of that tour and it was really, really one of the greatest experiences I ever had. Yeah, of course I could. I could mention that everybody talks about him now t- turning his back to the audience, which I, I don't know if he was doing that in your days. But how 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 was it? Uh, uh, it's a number of years ago. Was he? Because he's is he just so unpredictable now that sometimes he's he's in a certain zone and he has his back to the audience, and other times he's just more. Is that just the way he is? Uh, I never found him to be that way either as a uh, uh, a listener because I would go and see him a lot before. Yeah, yeah. Or on stage. I mean, you know, like you, like you do when you're on stage. Sometimes you face the drummer because that's who you're connecting with. Sometimes you face the bass player and sometimes you face the audience. And how challenging was that for you, Colin, musically? Uh, it was wonderful. I felt completely welcomed in that situation, more so than I have in some other situations where I've been a sideman. Okay. And he is such a good musician. I think an underrated musician. Um, as a player, uh, he mostly played piano and harmonica. Well, he only played piano and harmonica on stage then. Okay. But just as a singer, I mean, he just has the greatest phrasing anybody can imagine. And uh, um, it was great. He was, he was, he and the band and the crew. Well, that's incredible that you have that on your resume. That's a, that's a dream for most people to even be on a stage with him for, for a song, never mind, you know. It was a dream that I had had for decades before I got a chance to do it. But you've also had some other dream uh, gigs. Um, let's go to Bruce Coburn for a second. Well, Bruce, of course, I, I the first time I saw him play, I was 11. Also, it was the, on my birthday. He played <laughs> okay. at Victoria Park Secondary School, which was just a few blocks away from where we moved to when we moved to Toronto. Yep. And um, the first, like... Weeks after we moved, uh, my brother came to Toronto as well uh, for for Christmas, and uh, he uh, he discovered Bruce's first album, and it was fantastic. It was great, and it became a real fixture for us. And then he was playing at the high school. Just uh, you know, that was in December of seventy, and uh, in April of seventy one, he played uh, played at Victoria Park Center. So that's how far back I go as a fan. I got to meet him not that long after that at Mariposa Folk Festival, which was the first time I got on stage uh, in 72 mm-hmm. and I was 12 and he was great. He was the same. And uh, as I began to get out, out on the scene, we would run into each other at festivals and he would always remember me and he'd be encouraging to me. And uh, uh, then I heard that he had really uh, enjoyed a record that I made in, for A&M back in 88 Mm-hmm. called When the Spirit Comes. Sure. And uh, I, I had heard Bruce really liked that, and it meant a lot to me that he did. And then uh, not that long after that, in uh, the summer of 91, he called me up on the phone and said, hey, I, I want to put together a band uh, uh, with another guitar player. Do you want to come and do it? And I was thrilled. And then then he sent me the music that he had done, which was an album called Nothing But a Burning Light, mm-hmm. produced by Tito Burnett. Oh, there's that name again, T-Bone. Yep. Uh, and my life changed in so many ways. <laughs> and, yes. uh, and Bruce said to me, I met him. Uh, he was doing a showcase for the record company at the end of the summer of, of uh, 91. And, uh, and he, uh, I loved the music. I loved the direction. And I understood exactly why he would want to do what he wanted to do. And he said, who do you want to play with? 
And so I said, well, Johnny Diamond on bass and uh, uh, Gary Craig on drums, although Gary was busy playing with Anne-Marie, so he couldn't do it at that time. Uh-huh. And uh, so I said, well, Mish Puglio, who had played with him before, would be a great drummer, and Richard Bell, who uh, had just moved to Toronto a couple of years before, and my wife and I adopted, and he was my best friend. Oh, and okay. um, so uh, uh, we were Bruce's band, and then Richard ended up joining the band, and uh, we got Ken Pearson to play for the second tour that I did with Bruce in 94. But uh, it just opened up a whole world. And uh, um, I still work with Bruce. I, I was in the band from 91 through 94. And then since 96, I've produced 11 albums for him, all but one of the records he's made since then. Oh, unbelievable relationship. Wow. Really great. The trust, the trust you guys must have between each other, like just, you know, you've built up that uh, mutual respect, we'll say, between each other. Wow. We have a really good time hanging out together. and that's, I'm sure it's lots of fun, too. <laughs> that's really where it all begins. And I mean, he's so great. You know, when I was in his band, I really worked hard at developing my coffee making skills because he really doesn't <laughs> and we know how enough. important that is in the studio yeah <laughs> uh boy oh boy that's funny because i'll just say quickly that uh, when we were doing studio stuff me and gary together gary furnace what actually happened is we ended up getting up to about 20 cups a day and after gary uh went to sony he had to actually give up coffee and he just finally came back last year. He said he was so coffeeed out for, for, he'd had like 10 lifetimes of coffee. Cause if you, t- if, you if you do 20 cups a day times, <laughs> you know, I had a similar experience when I was uh, 22, I guess I was in the studio with my friend, Danny Greenspoon. Sure. And we were doing a single for my brother Lee and we had to get it done that night. And so we stayed up all night. And I had so much coffee that the next morning, <laughs> and I only had about three hours of sleep the next day. So then uh, that night, so uh, when I rolled out of bed and went to my local coffee shop on College Street, uh-huh. I just couldn't face another cup of coffee. And I didn't have <laughs> any until about, for about six years. And then I had started playing uh, on commercials in Toronto. I had gotten some jingle work and I had, uh, I was asked to uh, come up with something for the coffee council. Okay. And the way they were describing the coffee in this commercial, it was so good that I thought, man, I better have a cup. <laughs> that got me back on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, he's officially back on again, but he's down to, I think he only does two cups a day or something. But anyway, I'd love to jump now into, that was really interesting story, by the way. Thanks for that about, about Bruce and your, <laughs> your long-term relationship with him. Let's jump into your solo album quickly now. How, how, how did that come about? How did you meet... Uh, Lucinda, and how did you get signed, and how did you make that record? Well, really, uh, uh, I had been asked to do some music mm-hmm. for uh, for a TV show, just stock music, for a TV show that, uh, for the Sundance Channel that was taking place between 1989 and 1990 in Texas. And I began to think of different musical motifs, because I play that kind of music every day of my life. But it was interesting, because I don't necessarily write that many songs like that. So I came up with... 13, maybe 15, uh, maybe a few more pieces that I thought would be good stock music. And about a dozen of them felt like they were songs. I knew that I wanted to turn that into Mm -hmm. an album. And uh, so on the album Blow, about six of the songs come from that. And then the rest of them were kind of added on Mm -hmm. in the style. Uh, I've known Lucinda uh, since 1991, uh, Bruce and I did Austin City Limits. Ah, right. And we were on the same show as Lucinda, uh, Lucinda and Griff Morlix and uh, Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal, just the six of us. And we, it was a great experience, and I loved her music. When we came to Nashville, I produced something for her for a Howlin' Wolf tribute album, and we immediately just really, that's when we really became friends. And she became one of our very, very best friends. Uh, in those first years that we lived here, when she and her husband uh, met and got married, uh, you know, there's some of our really, really close friends. They had wanted to release my records on their label as soon as they got a label, Highway 20 Records. So you were actually the first uh, official release. I, I was their first outside artist. Well, that's a privilege and honor there. They've been releasing Lou's album for years now, but uh, they always wanted to release mine and it just for they didn't have staff or they didn't have the time to do it and eventually it happened with this one and it turned out great it did by the way let me compliment you on the album because uh what i love about it is it's uh it's got some really cool grooves to it and it's it's gritty 
and it's not super overproduced for me, which I love that. You, there's a, there's a, a lot of dirt in there still, and it sounds like um, you didn't meticulously slave away on it and do like 100 takes or something. Like it just has that sort of more uh, authentic sort of, you know, dirtier groove sound, which is not easy to get. I find a lot of stuff that gets sent to me or when I hear blues, it's just too polished. Well, it's too fixed up. It's funny thing because I kind of... The, the tracks found me before I found the tracks. Like when I did that music, that stock music, mm-hmm. it was not with my band. It was with a great drummer from Louisiana named Paul Griffith and a bass player who I've known for years, Dave Jakes. But we were just session guys. We got together, but I was asked to put all the music together. And it just because it turned out the way that it did, that's how the path led itself yep. to the record. So, so, I was just real pleased with how, how that turned out as, as opposed to trying going for doing that, it just ended up happening. And, and of course it's also very melodic, which is obviously super important. And a melody is always King in my books. Anyway, you got to have some melody there too, no matter how good a play, player you are. An interesting thing, you know, about blues music, I think because so many, uh, they're so, uh, the form is often really simple and the form is often, uh, similar. I think that people don't necessarily uh, differentiate, especially people who aren't inside blues music. Right. But you don't play a blues. You play things I used to do. You play built for comfort. You play same thing. You know, these are the great blues artists were great songwriters. And those songs were completely unique pieces that were discreet writing. Yep. There's nothing generic about it. Even even uh, though one can look at the forms and say this is sort of this form or that form, there's nothing generic about great blues music. And uh, um, it's an important thing to remember uh, when you listen to the music. But you have to kind of, you know, for me, I, I go down the rabbit hole with that music every day of my life. So I live in the rabbit hole. <laughs> You you do well again. Um, I wish we had more time. I <laughs> I'd like to do part two on this because I could go on forever. But I'm a bit of a blabbermouth, as I told you too. No, me me too. But that that's okay. I've really really enjoyed this, and uh, for all those people out there listening, um, you've got a tremendous uh, background of uh, and a wealth of material that you've been involved with. These are either as a songwriter, producer, you know, you've worn many hats. It's all fantastic stuff. I wish you all the best in your further music musical endeavors and thanks so much for doing this and I'd, I'd love to have you back uh to go a little deeper if, if that's okay with you at some point that's fantastic we didn't get into so many things i know i should i should have booked two hours but let's let's go part two another time <laughs> that'd be great anytime you want tom it's wonderful to, wonderful to reconnect with you thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it thank you thanks so much bye-bye I'm Tom Tremuth, and thanks to everybody out there again for listening to the Talk Music Podcast. As usual, I had a lot of fun doing this. Bye for now. Bye for now.